Here at Tech Stalks, we constantly strive to spotlight authentic music trailblazers, which is why we're stoked to have Tech Stalks styled by Ray-Ban this summer, helping us in our pursuit of featuring artists who are not afraid to be their authentic selves. Ray-Ban is your reflection in the mirror of your truest self. It's the shade on a hot summer's day. It's your own focus regardless of any spotlight that may be on you. Together, Tech Stalks and Ray-Ban are saying, if you've got a challenge for us, no matter what it is, you're on. You can't predict the light, but with Tech Stalks and Ray-Ban, you're always ready to capture it by living each day in the moment. Follow the light at www.rayband.com. Welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex, and today I am talking to the founding members of a chart-topping, award-winning American folk rock group who make genuine, straightforward music that comes from the heart and have been riveting audiences all over the world for a good decade and a half now. With each album they've released, their storytelling prowess grows stronger and a little bit darker, and their last album, Three, cements their status as masters of the concept album, tackling tricky subject matter and shedding light on pivotal societal issues that are so often marginalized. I am, of course, talking about the Lumineers, Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freitz. Hello, gentlemen, and welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, Tech. How are you doing? Doing well over here. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Where are you both in the world? Wesley, let's start with you. I'm in Denver, Colorado, uh, working with Jer, Jeremiah, I call him Jer. He calls me Wes. Um, um, we've been working on music for the past few weeks. Um, and Jer, I'll let Jer talk, but he's based in Italy. So he came over and we've been working on music. So we're both in Denver at the moment. Yeah, this is Jer over here. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a real pleasure. I moved uh, to Italy about two months ago to Torino, Italy, where my wife uh, is from. And yeah, like Wes said, I think about a few weeks ago, uh, flew back to Denver, been working on some some top secret Lumineer stuff. And uh, I fly back to Italy on Saturday, but it was such a joy to have sort of the first time we've ever done a sort of like writing retreat of sorts, you know, where I literally flew across the pond and had all this sort of um, hyper-focused um, songwriting with Wes. And, you know, it's sort of the very, very beginnings of, I guess, album four, which... I can't even believe we're talking. I'm saying that out loud. You know, uh, we just released our album three in uh, September of last year, and uh, the no- the very notion that we and West would even be back with our white dry erase board and our dry erase markers, um, conjuring up new ideas, it all feels a bit premature. But also at the same time, feeling like uh, trying to deal with this um, this situation that the whole world is experiencing. So it's it's been a positive thing to be able to write with Wes again. It's so exciting that you're already working on new music for album four. But but tell me, I, I can imagine, because you released three sort of late in 2019, but did COVID interrupt the way that the album's uh, promotional progression advanced at all? Were there things that you had to change along the way? I mean, I would, I would say we were really lucky in the sense of uh, we put the album out in September of 19, but about two thirds of it was already out before the release date. We did kind of a unique rollout where 
We put out six of the 10 songs mm. um, before the release date. We basically wanted to put out as much music as we could, unlike you know the old model, which is to put out a song and wait six months and then maybe drop an album. So um, by the time we started touring, we we people knew our music who were fans of ours off that record, which was great. Our tour did get cut off with about, I would say, two legs left in the U.S. and 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 abroad. So in that way, it was like everyone was feeling like kind of your um, just caught very off guard and dis you know disoriented. But I we felt lucky that I felt like we got about a half a tour done, and we 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 went through all that process of trying to let the world know we had an album out. Whereas if it happened, you know, right around when COVID struck, I think we would have felt like it fell on deaf ears. Um, so in that way, I think Jared and I have reflected on it and said, you know, this is a really fortunate thing that we got to put it out in the world at all before all this um, chaos took hold. What does it feel like now that the two of you are both in the same place together during this crazy time of COVID? What does it feel like to be making music together? Is it different under the circumstances? I think in a positive way, thankfully, circumstances, ultimately, it doesn't feel any different to me personally. At, at first, it, it definitely did. I mean, we we toyed with the idea of, well, let's get both COVID tested and then, you know, how are we going to work mm. with each other? And then um, we need to make sure that anyone living in our house, like our wives and anybody else that might be a family member or, you know, extended family member, if they're going to be in the house, they need to be tested and stuff. I will say, though, after all was said and done, after we got our did our due diligence and you know went through the te rigorous testing and all this stuff that Wes and I did um, individually but on the same page, um, after 15 years of writing with you, Wes, it, it really felt like nothing's changed in terms of there's just some sort of fundamental aspect. Me and Wes were talking about this the other day. We were working on a song and you know, we probably spent about a day and a half on something that we may have not needed to do, but we did it anyway. And cause we get a little like crazy and obsessive about, it was about this tempo issue that we were experiencing. And mm -hmm. we were both, we were both laughing at the end of it. And we were like, you know, I think we love that about each other that at the end of the day, it's just two people in a room. There's some instruments. There's like an old upright piano, there's some guitars, there's some tuners, and that's pretty much it. And then it's just, it's just this like fundamental thing that you can't cheat, that you can't change, that any aspects of success or fame or whatever you want to call it, that doesn't, you know, smooth over. It's still a very difficult process, but it's still very fun. And I think that's my most, you know, even though we didn't get the tour as much as we would have liked to, um, to, to all these beautiful places. Um, the writing is just such an exhilarating aspect of this job and this craft and trying to conjure up these ideas with Wes. So um, while the beginning stages felt uh, vastly different with, with COVID, obviously, um, ultimately it felt, felt really great and safe and, and peaceful and, and like inspiring again, which I didn't think I would experience at least in this calendar year. I think that um, what Jer said, I resonate with a lot. It, I think we're, in a way, um, it felt like we were of some use. You know, I, I feel like artists as a whole, um, their role is to sort of, I think, interpret hardship or a situation that is difficult and put it through their lens and express it, not tell people what to do, you know, not prescribe anything, just describe it. And I think mm -hmm. um, 
I think in this way we're we're of we're of use to society. You know what I mean? It's like now more than ever, I think art and in general is is very. I I think that's the part that's so debilitating about this whole situation is that so many people are 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 stuck somewhere where they don't feel like they're of use. They can't work. They can't go outside. They can't. Kids can't go to school. There's a feeling of uh, futility, and so we're trying to feel like we're finding ourselves through this purpose, this higher purpose of trying to just uh, write music, and maybe at the end of that, that will help us and and inadvertently sort of help others. That is a fantastic, fantastic response. Because also, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and we were saying, in a year, year and a half from now we reckon that so much incredible art is going to be born from this period of of i mean for want of a better word suffering i mean a lot of a lot of people have lost their livelihoods a lot of people are not making any money they haven't worked since you know whatever lockdown in their country and and i'm that's why i'm very excited to hear that you're busy working on new music because i feel like it'll um, especially in light of three, which is a phenomenal album, but we'll get to that later. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to hear what you have been working on. Yeah, we felt like it was a little bit of a trap, you know, the um, COVID, writing about COVID. Um, it seems like it will it will be a tricky thing to maneuver when it comes to telling stories and having a theme and things like that, where you don't want to, you don't want to do something that's just obligatory. You want to mm-hmm. you want to show your own, you see it with your own lens. So, I think Jared and I have talked a lot about not making a COVID record, but it probably inevitably will be in its own way. But we would like it to have a quality about it that it will stand up in ten years and make sense to someone in twenty years. And it doesn't have to be that you you experienced it um, even as this generation. Because some of our favorite music was born out of a time of, you know, like the 60s and 70s. A lot of that music really stays with me. And I wasn't alive then, but they made the type of music that transcended that. Um, So part of it is that. And then another interesting aspect, I think that I felt like got the ball rolling a little bit for us was that we... First, Jer had this, uh, this solo record, this beautiful solo record called Piano Piano that... um, it was like we have a couple songs on our albums. One of them's "Patience," another one's "April." That it's it just features Jer playing an instrumental piece, and it's something that he adds to every song, even with lyrics. But it's like showcased on those two on, on our albums on the Lumineers. But he made a whole record of these songs, and um, we had talked about it years ago, and it seemed like there was never time. And then now there was, and he re- he released part of it so far, and it'll be out I think in the new year. But it's beautiful and I feel like it was getting it's like easing your way back into the writing that we do together and and I I released a solo record um, of just cover songs because my philosophy was like I don't want to use any good ideas outside of this band this is like where my heart is this is where the best ideas get better with Jer so um, I think Mm -hmm. in in our own separate ways we were trying to ease back into songwriting and um, by the time we got together most recently, I felt like there was more clarity because we weren't so rusty coming off of uh, a tour where we were under the impression we would be touring, you know, the remaining eight, nine months of the year, we were still going to be on the road. 
And then it was like, you're home now, write a new record as if you're a robot. And that's just not how Mm -hmm. human beings operate, especially if you feel a little bit, you know, um, for lack of a better word, like in your own personal, uh, you know, it's like, I don't want to use the word prison, but it's sort of like you you feel a little bit confined, you know, like nothing is safe. I remember I lived next to a park and we didn't go in the park for two months just because my wife was so scared. Um, so there's that element that I think it took a while to shake that off for me and and get back to being creative. It's not like a switch you can just flick. Like, I think that's some people maybe, but for me, it was like, I'm, I'm sad right now. This is not like an inspiring time, you know? And then it's like, almost like once you digest that, maybe you're ready to express something about it. Yeah. And I mean, you, you, you mentioned, um, the musicians that you are influenced by, you know, the sixties. And, and I mean, you know, back in the fifties, musicians could build their entire music career on songs that dealt with like love and heartbreak. And then along comes Dylan and, you know, he doesn't, you know, all due respect to Dylan necessarily have the best singing voice in the world, but his lyrics are a whole education on storytelling. And he, completely revolutionizes the game would you say that that substance and storytelling through music which is something that the lumineers do so superbly well would you say that it's one of the most important part of of the music that you make i think it's an important element for sure thank you for for your really kind words i have a quote that as you were saying that i wanted to pull up because i think it's important to this It's by Allen Ginsberg, and he said it in 1966. He said, Dylan has sold out to God. That is to say, his command was to spread his beauty as wide as possible. It was the artistic challenge to see if great art can be done on a jukebox, and he proved it can. When I got back from India and got to the West Coast, there's a poet, Charlie Plymel, at a party in Bolinas, played me a record of this new young folk singer. And I heard... Hard, uh, hard rain, I think, and wept. Cause it seemed that the uh, torch had been passed to another generation from earlier bohemian or beat illumination and self empowerment. And I think there's this. Um it's almost like he raised the bar of what was allowed to be talked about on songs. And then every song that followed was in the shadow of that, that monolith Mm -hmm. that like, that is Dylan. So I felt like music just became boring if it was about those simple kind of tropes. And it was more interesting if it was more individual and vivid and, you know, a real arc of a story. Yeah, and I'm so um, I'm so happy that you mentioned like Allen Ginsberg as well because that that then also fed into the B generation and you had you know you had Kerouac and you had a whole literary uh, revolution as well alongside what Dylan was doing in terms of music. Hundred percent right. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's like it's amazing that these these people came along and and. I always feel like Dylan was the right person for the job, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Because he could take all this criticism <laughs> yeah. and he, 
I think we call him the Bat King when we're in the studio because he's just this like dark figure that comes out of the shadows and says insanely smart things and then leaves and retreats back. But he'll do the most absurd things. And most people, when given that much, I remember a very telling moment was when this reporter asked him, you know, you're the voice of your generation. This was like in the probably late 60s, early 70s. You're, they're considering you a prophet. Like, what do you think of that? And he said, I'm no prophet. I'm more of a song and dance man myself. It's like he was just, you know, pushing those titles off and not seeking, not overtly seeking it. And therefore it was put on him sort of even more. But there's a lot of people that if they're given the crown, they they put it right on their head and they they wear it proudly. And I felt like he was trying to shake people off his whole career of like shake them off the trail of what he was onto. And, you know, I think that just made him a fitting anti-hero hero. <laughs> and um, there's not that many people I think they mm-hmm. could handle that kind of pressure and make albums that even when very recently, time out of mind when you think about it, how how far that was in space, in the space of time between that and when he first started making music. And that was hailed as the best record of the year. I mean, to do that is is absolutely crazy. Or even this past year, um, putting out new music that everyone was like, did you hear how long that song was? Um, did you hear those lines? And it's like, he still got it. I just went and saw him in Denver yeah. about a year ago <laughs> at this uh, smaller place. And it was a thrill. Oh, wow. Because I had seen him at Madison Square Garden actually with Jared's older brother, Josh. We went and saw Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan at Madison Square Garden when we were like 15 and what a gig yeah. oh my god and um it was great but at the same time i knew all the songs the way i heard them on a record and i couldn't i couldn't even recognize his through you know at that point i don't know what was going on but he, he didn't seem to try <laughs> that hard and uh it was almost like a f you to the crowd and we were all just like i guess this is cool um so seeing him again recently it was like his heart was right back into it it's like he wanted to thin the herd down to instead of 15,000 or 20, he wanted it down to five and then he would give you a good show again. It was like on his terms. To his core cool audience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what it is, but he never ceases to fascinate. And um, and yeah, like we were alluding to earlier, I think the storytelling, um, when, when Jared and I started working together, I think this is kind of exactly why we're a good team is because I was obsessed with lyrics and, and Jer was making rap beats and like instrumental music and also, you know, almost like prog rock (laughs) type type stuff. And we met and we were coming from completely different places. And therefore it was like more complimentary to one another than like competition. It was like, we're finishing each other's sentences instead of stepping all over each other. Yeah. So. I I remember that vividly. I remember um I remember showing Wes a, a song that was I think by this band called Dream Theater and uh, I remember looking in the back and you almost looked like physically like sick to your stomach. I think you just really it was like yo this is sick and then I remember <laughs> like maybe you would show me a song by like Bruce Springsteen or Dylan for that matter. We're talking about Dylan and maybe the lyrics would go in one ear at the other, you know. And then like I was 19, I think, when uh, when Wes and I started the band, and then like the Venn diagram slowly started to morph over into each other's worlds. I think in a very like natural, organic, kind of beautiful way. Where like, you know, I think very quickly too, 
I, I always told myself and sort of like, believe it or not, I kind of resigned myself to being like, I don't really want to be in a band with a singer. This is like when I'm 16 <laughs> or 17, you know, like arrogant, young Jeremiah, 16, 17, thinks he knows it all, probably like a lot of us at that age. And I think I thought ignorantly and naively like, well, everything's been sung about love. Everything's been sung about this or that. And I think I was afraid to to, to embark on that. And then when I met Wes, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this guy's talking about that stuff, but in a very different way. And I think that in the in a very like unique way too, in a way that I thought, well, nobody else is really doing this right now. And this is cool. Like, how do you how do you not reinvent the wheel, but still make the wheel desirable and beautiful? And I, I immediately noticed that in, in Wes as a partner. And I think in the center of our Venn diagram was very large, bold letters, um, create original music. And then on the left side of the Venn diagram and right side, you know, arbitrarily speaking, was Wes and I, where we came from all of our backgrounds and all of our inspirations and all the music that really like inspired us. I mean, people talk about inspirations and inspirational artists. And, um, you know, I think all the stuff that really sunk its teeth into us, um, we brought into each other's worlds and, you know, I don't think it's ever stopped. I think that, you know, talking about album one or even fast forward 15 years later to 2020, starting to chip away at the sculpture of whatever album four is going to turn into, um, the ability to still inspire each other, the ability Mm -hmm. to still surprise each other it gets harder as you get older. I mean, I, I love this idea that young young artists, you know, you just get to wait around. When you're like 16 or 19 or even in your early 20s, you just wait for something sick to happen and inspire you. And, and you know, after a matter of time, it just inevitably does. But as you get older, um, you have to sort of find your inspirations. You have to sort of make your inspirations. And I think... Yeah, you have to go out and find... Yeah, seek them actively. Yeah, and I think that that ability that we're still able to do that with each other is sort of paramount to why we're in it for the, you know, for the long haul, so to speak. Yeah. It's kind of like fishing. I mean, when you're young, you're like, I'm sleeping in, I'll fish when it's convenient for me. And now like, as you get older, you're like up before the sun, you know, out there and you're, you know, where the fishing holes are. It's like you study it and you respect how difficult it is. Songwriting feels like a mixture of fishing and like being a human antenna, you know, waiting out in a field for a signal to, to reach you. Um, where, like Jared was saying, I mean, we, we sort of, I think our greatest skill now probably is knowing when we have a good idea. Um, it's not necessary that we mm-hmm. write more or less. It's just knowing when you're onto something. And we always wrote, you know, we always said to each other, let's not make something stock, you know, no stock. It was like the word stock with like an anti sign over it, like a cross <laughs> through it. And for, for us, that just meant it has to be distinct or it'll die. It's like, I want people to, it's like Dylan used to say, I want people to lean in or walk away. I don't want them to just sit there Mm -hmm. neutral. And um, so that's still to this day, it's funny because we'll be making a song that most bands I would guess would say that's, that's slow or boring in some way, but we see some distinct quality. Like there's a song Donna on the last record. That's one of my favorites we've ever done. And it's, by all standards, like never going to be a quote unquote hit, but it's, I bet you it'll be one of our biggest songs live for, for, for as long as we play. And it's like our instincts on that. I'm proud of that. It's same with slow it down on our first record. Mm, um, yeah. These are songs that like live with people and it's like your instinct as a songwriter needs to override whatever management is telling you 
or trying to tell you or a label is it's like you know better your heart knows you know your instinct is there and and sometimes that gets a little squashed by the 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 suits around you which is probably another like element of us i think and the luck we had was the luck we had was that we had some no breaks in the beginning almost like you, you have bad luck that leads to good luck where i was nearly 30 when we got our first break mm-hmm. so by then we knew kind of like what we wanted out of how much autonomy we wanted which was in total autonomy so when we make a record <laughs> we just hand it to the label and we say here it is it's done and when we signed record deals we're lucky enough that and we have a really great lawyer um who's always been with us since day one and believed in us and he was like we're just going to do one record deals you know that's every time you're a free agent after every record so you prove it to them they prove it to you that is the smartest deal i have heard in so long that's incredible yeah and then it makes both sides want to work for it and um you know prove it Mm. and it's not like you're going to mail anything in because everyone's has an interest in it um you know succeeding maybe now but also in a long-term way you know like for us it's like it's always the long haul and you were said you were uh almost 30 when you got your break so jeremiah where's you've known each other for a very long time you grew up together in ramsey in new jersey what i mean you moved states you moved to denver colorado what keeps the fire burning what keeps your drive alive after all of those years of making music and maybe feeling like it's not a means to an end well i i know jer has some some great things to say about this i will say that part of it is um i heard this quote recently and it very much resonated to your question with this question it's like someone said you know will willpower and drive is finite but love is infinite so I think if you're mm. if you're truly magnetically pulled to something, you'll get up and do it as though, you know, you're possessed by it. And if you're just doing it to prove something to yourself or other people, that has its limits. And so I'll get these batches of ideas from Jer. I think he's on to batch eight. He's probably on the nine now where it's just <laughs> batches of voice memos. And I'm like, this dude is possessed. I love this. <laughs> and I'm a little more like precious. Like I'll share with him something that I think is far enough along. And... um but it's like, I think that proves to me, I see that in him all the time is like, he doesn't have a choice in the matter. It's just something that he's going to do, whether it was in this band or just like a human being, it's like something that maybe soothes your soul or I don't know what it does, but you're drawn to it in a way that's not trying to prove something. It just, it just is. It's like being hungry. Man, I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, likewise, I think like it's twofold. I mean, one, it's the personal relationship that I have with Wes and two, it's the music, but to speak on both a little bit, I mean, the personal relationship, when we first started working together, we just would have these, like these crazy long engrossing conversations, like about, you know, Wes was a psychology major and I was a sociology major and we talk about music, but then half the time, maybe even other, more than half the time, we talk about other cool stuff that just, that we like to talk about, whether it's, I don't even know. I don't have anything good to talk about, whether it's a TV show or just some deeply engrossed conversation about this or that. Um, and the fact that we still have those 15 years later, I mean, take any relationship um, in your life, plutonic, romantic, the, the idea that you could still have a very interesting conversation about something or still surprise one another with something um, to talk about or something to show them creatively. I think that's just like, if you're, 
if you're stupid enough to not or blind enough to not acknowledge that, then that would be like an absolute shame. Um, like the biggest shame mm-hmm. of them all. And I think for me too, like the music is just, I always thought about this. Like when Wes and I started writing, I think I even said this to Wes, like something to the effect of imagine being like in Led Zeppelin, imagine, you know, the first time they hit play in Black Dog or the first time Aerosmith hit play in Dream On or yeah. the first time Beatles hit play on a day in the life. Um, I'm, you know, to anyone listening, I am not trying to inadvertently compare ourselves to Led Zeppelin, the Beatles <laughs> or whoever else. But just in our own little Petri dish, our own little microcosm of creating our own music, when I know it's just Wes and our ears have heard that new song idea, and if it's like something like Slow It Down off our first album, or something like My Cell off our last album, or um, I'll never forget the first time I heard the finished product of Sleep on the Floor. It was probably me, Wes, the bassist Byron Isaacs, Mm. uh, our fantastic producer Simon Felice, and our amazing engineer, David Barron. Um, the first time that we hit play and sleep on the floor in, in the studio in the Catskills of New York, that was the most insane high. Like, I just got goosebumps just even recanting this story. Like, I, it literally was such an insane high. And it's just like, you look over at West, we look over each other, and there's no, there's no physical or verbal contact. It's just like, yeah. Like, and it's, it's, it's not an <laughs> ego thing either. It's, it's an actual, it's like a, the most pure, like, I'm, we're proud of this. Like we're, we love doing this. We're doing this for all the right reasons, I think. And we talk about this so much. Like, how do we continue to do this for the right reasons? How do we continue to, but you know, something as rudimentary as that, like, I hate to call it a high because when you talk about highs, you talk about lows, but that's, that's an absolute, um, truism for this craft, for this, for this, you know, for this lonesome at time, uh, you know, this, it's kind of this path that we've chosen or this path that's chosen us can be, can be very lonesome at times. And, in that, and that is songwriting, mm-hmm. you know, but I think that um, it's so gratifying and so fulfilling and nourishing um, when we find that new song idea and we realize we're still doing this a decade and a half you know, later. It's just it's so fun and awesome to be able to say that out loud. Yeah. And it's a joy to it's a joy to share it. But if I'm being honest, it's almost like before it. It, your baby gets put out in the woods to like meet the wolves or the angels that it meets. Um, you, you, you have nothing but potential there. And it's like this moment of anything is possible with the song. And that is the purest form of bliss because you can just be proud of it and love it. And you don't have to worry about anything around the song. You know how you feel about it. And uh, yeah, it's a special it's a special thing. It's like, like you were saying, Jared, it's like a high. And I, I kept thinking, you know, to constantly bring me back to Dylan, but he says, every, you know, you, maybe the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And I feel like we're <laughs> serving the song. That's like our whole mantra. It always has been is to serve the song. So if you talk to anybody in our band, there's four other people, amazing musicians on stage with us every night. And we're all trying to be like, how can I serve this show? How can I serve this song? And you remove the ego as much as possible. And you have the, the more you do that, the better the show becomes. And the, if you see a band and you wonder why it's not a good show, it's usually because someone's ego needs to be fed more than the show needs to be served or the song. And it's the same on a record. You hear like a needless mm. solo or a, a needless moment or clutter because there's too many people playing. It's usually because somebody's more worried about themselves than how the song is sounding. So we're always like as a philosophy trying to 
that's what's kind of impressive is that there are these songs where one of us is not even on it just because it was like, well, that we don't need that. That's not necessary. But you could have an argument but like, then, well, but if I'm not on there, then it's not, what, what does that mean? It's like, well, it means you didn't need to be on there. Like, <laughs> it's it's yeah. not the end of the world, you know? Um, but I think that's, I'm, I'm grateful for that as a part of our, the way we work because it makes things less complicated. Yeah. But like you said, also, I mean, whatever is going on during the writing process, during the sessions in studio while you're recording, you put that song out into the world and people interpret it in the way that they want to interpret it. Um, And where's the, I read an interview that you did, I think it was at the beginning of the year where you said that you feel like when you perform Hey Ho now, it's almost like performing a cover because it really isn't yours anymore because it became so omnipresent for a while. And And I thought that that was so interesting. And I was wondering what, your relationship is like with the song now yeah i had a guitar teacher his name is charles arthur if you're ever in the richmond virginia area and you need lessons go to him um but he every (laughs) every milestone we hit i send him like a copy of that record because he he taught me everything i know about songwriting and he was mostly sitting around talking about how to i don't know how to have restraint and say the most with the least and many other things but he's in a part-time wedding band and he has to play that song and a few of our other songs because the wedding parties asked for it and he's like how weird is this i'm like covering your song and i i taught you you little asshole now I gotta, and um that and poor I, guy yeah and i said to him like you think it's weird for you it's weird for me like it does feel like a cover as well because um i think when you play something that many times just you know it's almost impossible to have the grip of emotion that you had on it it's almost like if you were an actor and you were doing a Broadway show, but that show became Hamilton and you were going to remain the star for five years, 10 years, what, how, how would you reconnect with the lines every night? You know, it would almost be like insane if you did it the same way. So you almost try to find these inroads with a song like that um, to connect with it. But you also, for me, there's an absurdity to it where you can laugh at it and say, this is just strange that, that, it, it, it's like it didn't really happen, but it did. And that is, I, I have a lot of gratitude towards the song because I feel like it opened doors for us. But I'm grateful that, the you know, that's not what the end of the story and the story ended with. It's like a, a, an icebreaker. It's like your line, your opening line at a bar. It's not, it's not really how, it's not going to help you in a couple years from now. So um, I feel like it was kind of this key that opened the door. And I'm so I'm super grateful for it. And I think at the same time, I respect the fact that it was something we had to work out from under, you know, to get away from in a way to show we have this song. And for the casual listener who never listens to any of our records, they might say, that's your song, but we have a lot more to offer. And it's up to them if they want to, you know, delve in. But Mm. we had a song on that same album, Stubborn Love, that is, if you go to a show, it's the biggest song of the night. And that that it you know it wasn't everywhere because we were asked to cut the song down by like 45 seconds or something and we refused and so pop radio wouldn't play it because it was supposedly too long and that just shows you the like this sort of strange nature of top 40 radio and um how commercial 
radio works, it's 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 not really thinking about what's best. It's just like what's good for the moment. So we, I feel like we were in part of some zeitgeist that these other bands, mm. a lot of it's timing, right? Like these other bands, there was um, Edward Sharp, Magnetic Zeros come to mind, Mumford and Sons, Avett Brothers, to name a few, that really kind of, I would describe it as like set the table for something like this to happen. And so we, we you know, we were grateful for what they did because it made people open to what we were doing. Yeah. And so uh, that was an also weird element of it because when we were coming up, you'd then get compared to these bands that we're all, di- we're, I think we're all pulling from influences that are well before any of us. But, you know, the way the, the way the description can go, it's like, this sounds like this, so therefore it must be derivative of this. And you're like, I'm not that good. I couldn't like listen to a record and just like make make this this quickly. I was, Jared and I were listening to so many different things over the last like 15 years of working together. Um, so I think it's an interesting ride, but I wouldn't trade it. I feel like we've made good on our, I feel like we, our goal was to sort of build trust with fans. You know, we'd play Hohe third in the set, fourth in the set. Cause I remember going to shows where people would withhold the, what they would call like the most well-known or big song. They'd wait till the very last song. And I was always like, the fans are on edge. They're like wondering if you're going to play it. Um, also, don't you have any other good songs? Just play it now and then show them what else you got. So that's what we were doing and it worked. Um, <laughs> so in a weird way, we sort of like, I think we became aware of it, but we weren't resentful of it. It was just something that is part of the landscape and you got to, you, you have to, you have to use it to your advantage when you can and maneuver around it. Cause not that many, it's like that movie, that thing you do, if you've ever seen that, it's like the weirdest thing when you hear your own voice on a radio and then then you hear it in yes. a cafe and then you hear it in on the Uber ride to the airport and then you hear it on the airplane and then the guy starts announcing you on the, it's like really feels like an out of body movie experience. And you're like, this isn't really happening. This isn't like real. So, um, it provided a wild ride, but I'm like, I've enjoyed so much of it. And especially lately because it's our fans, they know our albums front to back. And that's like, it's validation for us that, you know, every song on the album matters. It's it's like we feel like a real band making real music and not this like, um, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like when you catch a band at the wrong point in their their arc or something, their their heart's not in it. And I feel lucky that, you know, we're, we're moved by what we do. We want to get the goosebumps. I got, I got nothing to add to that. That was beautiful. I want to talk about when the Lumineers toured South Africa in 2015, because at the time, uh, I think it was your show in Joburg, was the biggest audience of your career to date. And there was 17,000 people, I remember, explicitly. And, and, and I wanted to know, like, South African audiences are incredibly passionate. Like, from what I experience, what I have experienced, they don't just know the singles. They know the whole album from from beginning to end. And I mean, to fly 15,000 kilometers from home to play to the biggest audience of your career. I mean, Jeremiah, tell me what, I mean, what, what is that like? What is that feeling like when you think back on that time? How do you remember it? I might not have a lot to say about that experience, but the quality of what I'm about to say, hopefully rings true. It was, it was honestly one of the most special 
concerts that we've ever experienced as a band and in my entire life. Um, to fly that far to South Africa, um, you know, me and Wes, we're from a little suburban town, Ramsey, New Jersey, to, to even hear the word South Africa, to know that you're going to that continent. It's like a, it's like going to outer space or something for us. It's this faraway place that you never dream of going. I mean, our biggest, our 10 year goal was to go to Europe. And oh, wow. you know, after we, after we sort of ticked that box, Early on, thankfully, we got very lucky, um, you know, and worked hard to achieve that. Uh, the idea to go to South Africa was just mind blowing, and you know, it was this whole thing. And when we actually got there, um, you know, every culture, every country is a little bit different. And I think it was just something about the people's faces and the eyes don't lie. I mean, just every South African that was in the crowd, you could just ha- just tell that they were, you know, you guys were hanging on every word and phrase yeah. and every every kick drum and every lyric and every syllable song, um, it just was really, really so special. And then to be able to, you know, explore the country and do maybe what might be a stereotypical thing for tourists to do, but to do the safari thing and to go around the city, you know, with like a guide or whatever, um, it just was so mind blowing. And to see that many people to a country that we've never physically set foot on, it's like the power of technology or the power of like also the music just, somehow getting over to South Africa. I still don't know to this day why we're that big, but it's something that I'll be forever thankful for. And that was, you know, I'm not just saying that because of who you guys are, but the fact that, you know, we were, we were coming to South Africa and I know we will eventually once the world sort of heals itself, but that was one of the biggest um, disappointments that I knew that South Africa might be delayed on the Lumineers tour schedule because of COVID. But um, the simple answer to your question was, you know, it's a moment I'll never forget and cherish for the rest of my life. Yeah, we had watched Searching for Sugar Man. We love you here. Leading up to that. (laughs) (laughs) We had watched Searching for Sugar Man before going on that trip. And in a much more condensed version, like if you fast forward to the film, that's, it's weird. We, in 2005 and six, Jared and I were often paying the door fee for friends to just get into our shows. We could barely squeeze, you know, eight or 10 people in. Um, we'd call friends, please come to the show. And then to fly, you know, fast forward 10 years later and to fly less than that and and to fly over there to South Africa and have, it's almost like you're like, what do you, who are they here to see? What are they doing here? What's going on? Um, it's very, very confusing. <laughs> um, because you're more used to, you're more used to no one being there than people jostling for a place near the stage. So I think, I think that was, uh, I remember going to the record shop where the the guy who's interviewed throughout Searching for Sugar Man, um, and we went there and we've brought them our records every time now since where we're like, we love that, um, we love that documentary. And I think, you know, Rodriguez, like he, I think he represents so much of what, like that, that perseverance because he believed in something about his own music. Um, and then the, and the world finally saw it, um. To be appreciated at all in your in your own time is a rare thing, so I think we felt the love coming over there, and then to have it be the biggest crowd to date at that point was just crazy to us. We, we yeah, just I know what you mean, Wes. You're almost like, yo, Sugar Man, is he here? <laughs> yeah, why are people? Is here? this Sugar Man too? <laughs> like, are we in the midst of like he's gonna and Sugar Man now? You know, I don't know. It just was, yeah, it was mind blowing. Like, no joke. I remember. Uh, no way to, yeah, I remember. So Jono. Uh, organized like a romantic little picnic for my, I 
think my fiance at the time, now my wife. Don't know for everybody listening who doesn't know, Jono is our, our elusive producer of Text Talks, who uh, was also uh, the the Lumineers tour manager when you came down here on your on your tours. But anyway, continue. I interrupt you. Yeah, he was guiding us around, guiding us around, and giving us give me giving me a romantic um, date with my my fiance. So what a gem. We're in this rock. He gave us this actual picnic basket, which I've never actually used a real picnic basket. <laughs> and these kids were so unimpressed and um, making fun of us, essentially. And so we were like, do you guys want some cheese? They're like, yeah, sure, I'll have some cheese. No thanks. And eventually <laughs> we talked to them and they found out what band I was in. And then they were like our best friends. And I was like, oh, like people in South Africa know who we are. This is crazy. He's like, you're bigger than the fucking Kings of Leon here, man. And we're like, <laughs> holy shit. Like, uh, I would have just taken, we liked your music, you know? So um, I think it's experiences like that where you meet people that suddenly get nervous around you for no other reason than that they've listened to your music or heard your band. I think it really um, opens your eyes up to how the music has spread in some areas and it's exciting. And, um, unlikely I felt like in South Africa. And so it's literally people ask us, what are your favorite places to tour? And it's always, I always say South Africa and Japan are my two favorite oh, wow. places to tour. And they're vastly different crowd sizes. You know, Japan's some of our smallest <laughs> and South Africa, some are our biggest, but the life experiences I've had there and along with Jer as well, um, between the music, the cities, the people, and then the, the wildlife, it's, it's, we're constantly telling friends about it. And one of my, one of my good friends now is one of our tour guides. Um, his name is Callum and, um, he does these amazing tours. So he's actually come and visited me and my wife out in the States. So stuff like that, where we're, we're, they've become close friends of ours as has Jono. And, um, Jono, Jono is actually really tight with, um, our, our barefoot piano player named Stealth Olvang. So, um, yeah, it's like weird how we've made these sort of life, lifelong friends when we see them. Um, I wanted to go to Jono's wedding. I, we, I, we couldn't make it. I think we were on tour or something, but, um, yeah, we've made friends out of, out of the, to the times we've been there, even though it's so far away. So lovely, lovely people and amazing place. The new album, the, the most recent album, collection of nine songs bundled into three chapters that focus on three fictional characters, right? Gloria, the grandmother, Jimmy Sparks, her son, and Junior Sparks, the grandson. And while these characters are essentially fictional, the story is based on your aunt, Wesley, who dealt with alcoholism. Like, obviously, this is an incredibly personal part of your life to share. But what was it that inspired you to be so open and vulnerable about that aspect of your life? Yeah, so it was, it was actually a, a, about my wife's mother. So for the last 11 years, um, my wife's mother has been battling alcoholism since I've known her, but also well before that. So probably probably going on 35 years. And um, I think it's one of those things that you don't really, I remember going to Jer and, and expressing like, hey, I don't mean to be, I don't know, obnoxious or overbearing about the subject matter. I just, I, my, I can't not 
right about this right now. It's like I'm stuck on it. And until I become unstuck, it feels like the only thing I can really express um, genuinely. And so, you know, as an example, um, she spent, this is my, my mother-in-law spent, there was 96 recorded visits to the emergency room last year. That's just, mm. and that's not even counting Denver proper where they don't keep track of that. So um, she was in and out of jail, in and out of the hospital. Um, prior to that, we had bought her a house and she had, ha- had sort of destroyed herself and the house in the process and we had to evict her. Um, prior to that, right after that, we tried to put her into rehab. Um, she's met our son who's almost three once in person when she was inebriated. So it's, it's, it's a really, something that's really, um, haunted me, I guess you could say, or been on my Mm -hmm. mind a tremendous amount. And so the idea of being honest about it was, was appealing because maybe I could express some of these things. Um, but also at the time putting it out, I wanted there to be a level of anonymity to telling the story where I could say, Hey, this is Gloria. This isn't you in case she heard it directly in that moment. I didn't want her to feel completely exposed. But there was a part of me that was like, I want to express how this has been for me, for me and my wife, for my wife, for the family. Um, and I want to do it in as fair of a way as I can, but in an unflinching or honest way. So that was the sort of, um, I think, hardest part of it was realizing that she's probably going to hear it one day, maybe. And would she feel like she was given a fair depiction or a fair shake in these songs? And I feel like I, I set out to do that. It's up to her, you know whether how she feels about it but for me that that was my intention i felt like i did that but it was still it was cathartic but it was like it's like those movies where there's not really a happy ending and half the audience hates that um i feel like that's what our album felt like even ending on salt in the sea it was like that was going to be the title track because i think it really embodies the in other words that was what we're going to name the record because we felt like it really embodied the the spirit of the record and that and that there's not really a resolution it's just we're we're saying it's it's arbitrarily over at this point but life continues to roll on and so um yeah it was a it was a tough record to write but i think it also inadvertently sort of brought jared and i connected us a bit because mm-hmm. you know through jared's own life experiences and his own um experiences with addiction and his family i think that's um that's something we never really talked a whole lot about in the very beginning we wrote a couple songs about it you know we kind of scratched the surface and that was good but it felt like almost lying dormant and um in a weird way i felt like it was a catalyst to get to know one another even if that wasn't the intention or you know anything like that it just felt i feel like i know him a lot more after making this record even though I was singing about my own life, it sort of brought up things in his life. And, and it, and we, I felt like we were really honest with one another. You know, as somebody who has been affected by family members who are alcoholics, I understand the personal subject matter and, and I understand that it's incredibly difficult to talk about. And I don't know if I could be as brave as you and pour my experience into something as personal as an album, especially considering the fact that, you know, there will come a point where, 
where somebody like me, you know, a member of the media will like want to talk about it. Jeremiah, have you had instances where, where fans have reached out to you because they can relate to specifically three's subject matter, but, but anything else where you've had to really pour personal experience into, into a song? Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely had fans and friends and colleagues and peers and people that I've worked with for years that maybe I didn't know that they had something going on, whether in their personal life or someone in their direct family. And uh, I think that's really special. I think that, you know, these types of things, these, let's just call them these uh, shitty circumstances and shitty events that are inevitable being alive on this planet Earth, um, they're going to happen whether we acknowledge them or not. So the more that we do acknowledge them, I think is really healthy and opens up like if you want to open up somebody, it's like the ultimate icebreaker is probably some like terrible tragedy or grief stricken thing. And if it, if it's, if it's the right, you know, if it's the right context, I'll never forget one time we were doing, um, promo for the album one and sort of like a top 40, like a very poppy, um, radio station here in the United States. And, uh, this guy was talking to me and Wes and he was like, all right, we're going to do this interview. And it's like seven 15 in the morning, you know, like the worst hour to be like engaged with someone. And he's like, all right, we're going to talk about ho Hey and you know, it's going to be great. And then you're like, all right. And then it's like, all right. And we're back. And Jeremiah, your brother died of a heroin overdose. What was that like? And I was just like, and you know, that happened to me in my life and I'm, I'm smiling and I'm joking about it. I hope nobody thinks that I'm a, a psycho for, for making such a, potentially crass joke, but it's like, you know, my brother, Josh, Joshua, um, he died of a heroin drug overdose when he was 19. Um, I guess going on about 20 years ago. And, you know, I pray it's remains to be the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. But under that context, it was just so abysmal and so terrible to have, you know, you think you're going to talk about like songwriting or what's it like to blow up or what's it like, you know, this or that. And, uh, so that, but yeah, like after releasing this album, you know, Wes was speaking on his behalf. And I think for me, like in my corner, um, I just celebrated five years of sobriety, I think in uh, August. And Congratulations. Thank you. And, you know, my older brother, he died of a heroin drug overdose, like I said. And, you know, alcoholism seems to run in my family, um, going all the way back to my grandparents and great grandparents. So it's this thing that, you know, like I said, these things are happening around big cities, small cities, you know, remote villages. Um, like the, anywhere, like anywhere people and humans inhabit the world, um, these types of things are happening. So, you know, to hear Wes take all those experiences and put them into, into lyrical, you know, sort of therapy sessions. And then I do remember when we were making the album three, uh, I was like, yo, we just got to take a walk. And it wasn't like, Hey, I don't want you to write about this anymore. It was just like, Hey, this is bringing up a lot of dormant stuff. Um, like this volcano of like grief and like that I thought was dormant. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it just was important at the time to communicate to, you know, my writing partner and to my brother from another mother, Hey, this is like super heavy. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I just need you to know that this is bringing up a lot of what I thought was like dormant or extinct feelings. And I think though that was the light bulb where it realized, okay, well, this is going to actually this is going to turn, this is going to touch people on their experiences. So, you know, whether it's something like an Instagram, uh, direct DM or whether it's, you know, when before COVID meeting fans at meet and greets and someone just being like, Hey, I lost my dad to alcoholism or Hey, I lost my son or Hey, I lost my brother to this or that. Um, 
it's not always the easiest thing to talk about when you're not ready for it, but I think it's like that's that's life, you know. I think that's so raw and so crude, and that's such a such a you know, I use the word awesome is such an awesome aspect of life. Awesome in the sense of like such a powerful and something that you can't even quite quite um comprehend in the in the moment. So um yeah, it's definitely opened up the floodgates within the band and then also um to the fans. And I think that's something that's beautiful. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I was I was also gonna just add that tech, you going through that. I'm sorry that you've experienced that and the tough part about that but also the reassuring part about that is you're we we've done interviews over this record you know dozens of times by now about three and um there are so many interviewers alone that have expressed a similar thing that you wonder how many people are out there um how many people are touched by something like this it's pretty shocking and the numbers are if we really, if we knew the real numbers, it would be staggering how widespread it is. And it was almost like we were sitting on this taboo subject matter, and yet everyone, you know, sort of feels this, and or a lot, rather, a lot of people go through this. And I think that was part of the eye-opening experience of making the record as well was just how many people were, um, you know, going through similar situations silently and suffering silently. So. I'm glad when people open up and say, I have a family member, I have a loved one, I myself, whoever it is. Um, Jerry, I remember backstage, we did that one interview where the person was almost in tears either before or after the interview. And it was like, yeah, wow, these are, this is happening all over the place. And and I think part of it is that you don't need to, in, combined with that, you don't need to feel ashamed or alone because of that. Yeah, I remember that, Wes. I remember... Um a lot of people in the music industry are sort of been um, taken by this, you know, disease of alcoholism and addiction to drugs and alcohol, whatever. And uh, yeah, I remember after the interview, it was sort of off the record moment. Um, and that happened a lot. I remember, you know, people that we talked to, interviewers, even even before or after the interview is done, might um, open up to us about their own experiences with drugs and alcohol. So I think putting this album out into the world was something really positive. And I think I, at, at first I thought it was going to be um, a little bit dark or a little bit too dark maybe for people to understand or to enjoy. And then uh, that all went out the window once it got released. So, yeah. Guys, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on Tech Stalks today. But before you go... You have to promise me that when the fourth album comes out, whenever that might be, you will come back and we will have a long, in-depth chat about the next album, which I'm sure is going to be a concept album. I don't know. I'm crossing my fingers because, I mean, that's what you guys seem to do best. But promise me that you will come back and we will do this again. Yeah, we'll have to do it in person or something. Wouldn't it? Oh, next time yes. We... Deal. Yeah, yes. let's do it. Thank you so much for having us. This was a beautiful conversation. It's, it's only a pleasure. Next time it'll be double the length. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Yay! Could it be I was the one that you held so deep in the night? On the back staircase you fell to your knees with tears in your eyes. All that you suffered, all the disease, you couldn't hide it, 
hide it from me All alone scared in your room Would you swear there's nobody home On the bed laying awake As you prayed he'd leave you alone I'll let the darkness swallow me whole I need to find you, need you to know I'll be your friend in the daylight again The doctors with their medicine left me to rock in my field From the destruction out of the flame You need a villain, give me a name I'll be your friend in the daylight for joining us in studio. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Text Talks. Be sure to check out texttalks.com for more episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or listen to Text Talks on all good streaming platforms. Also, a huge shout out to Tom's, the only music store, for being the most incredible technical supplier. From myself, Tex, our producers, Jonathan Engs and Matthew Luetz, and our research assistant, Al Clapper, catch you on the flip side.